desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're listening to episode 47. And it was a stunning success. They made a series of shuttle flights. They got these guys out from under the noses of the Germans. They didn't leave anybody behind. And what they pulled off with World War II technology would be challenging even now with modern aircraft and night vision goggles. It wouldn't be easy now. They did it because they didn't know it was impossible. This is Tom Young, talking about the real-life, daring rescue mission called Operation Halyard, featured in his new novel, Red Burning Sky. We begin our chat with Tom, talking about the characters he chose to tell this little-known World War II story. I want to start by talking about Drew, one of the people that we hear this story come through. And... In the very beginning, I think one of the first things we learn about Drew is that he is, he's been studying the nature of fear and courage. And he may, you, you quote Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. For any main character in a novel, uh, you need to have what I call an internal conflict as well as the external conflict. And the external conflict in a story like this is, of course, the war. They want to accomplish their mission and, and survive it. But, but there also needs to be a conflict inside of them. And for Drew, his conflict is he's trying to uh, redeem himself after what he sees as a failure of his courage. So he puts a lot of thought into what courage means, how you hold on to it, how you find it. And so I have him philosophizing a bit about how do you make yourself do something that you know is extremely dangerous. I was just curious about where where that philosophizing came from. The first expression of an idea like that I ever heard actually came from my grandfather. He talked about how when he first deployed during uh, World War II, uh, he was an aircraft mechanic and he was at a base that was getting bombed night after night. And the worry about what might happen in the bombing was bothering him. And then he finally said, he, he said to himself, if a bomb falls, it's either going to hit me or it's not. If it hits me, I'm not going to know it. If it doesn't hit me, I'm fine. And that, that's just the way he dealt with that fear. So that idea sneaked into my book. I like that it came from your grandfather. So we hear some philosophy through Drew. We also, there's a younger character, Basa. And I think he, to me, he sort of juxtaposes some of the philosophy of Drew, but in, some, but in other ways, he kind of echoes it. I think some of the lessons that you get from Vasa are about, he gets them from Father Milos, right? Correct. Yes, yes. That his wisdom sort of is, comes to him through a priest. And these ideas about what should guide you. There's a really good segment about justice and vengeance. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and where, where that came from for you as a writer? Yes. Vasa's struggle is very different from Drew's. Vasa has no problem being brave. He's very brave. But 
he's trying to get straight in his mind, you know, what it means to have to fight, what it means to take a life. At points in the book, he, he suffers personal losses. Yeah. And he deals with the urge for vengeance. And Father Milos and some of the older men around him try to keep him from becoming foolhardy and reckless in battle uh, because of a thirst for vengeance. And, and he realizes he should be seeking justice, not vengeance. And he thinks a lot about, about what it means to use violence. And uh, believe it or not, that character was based on someone I knew. In the 1980s, when I was a student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I took a terrific course in Russian novels. And the professor was a gentleman named Dr. Vaza Mahalovich. And in his teenage years, during the Yugoslav Civil War, which was going on in the middle of World War II, he picked up a rifle and fought against Nazis and the communist guerrillas of the Yugoslav Civil War. And uh, his was a a very uh, inspiring personal story, a classic American uh, immigrant story. Uh, After his side lost the Yugoslav Civil War, he spent five years in refugee camps in Italy and in Germany. And finally, in 1951, he made his way to the U.S. And when he arrived in New York Harbor, they gave him an envelope with $50 and a bus ticket to Kansas City. He rode the bus to Kansas City and got a job there he didn't like. So then he moved to Detroit and took a job on a Chrysler assembly line. And... While working that assembly line, he paid his way through college and got his undergraduate degree and his master's and his PhD and became a respected scholar of Russian and East European literature. And that's how he came to be my professor. But his story began as a teenage guerrilla fighter in in the 1940s. And uh, he was he was quite a gentleman. Um, And that and that inspired my character, Vaza. That's amazing that you knew someone like that, that had that kind of path through life, you know. Yes, yes. Just unbelievable, really, that he would end up being a scholar and a teacher. Exactly. And in his later life, he wrote short stories and, uh, and poetry. He did an English translation of an epic Serbian poem called The Mountain Wreath, which I refer to in the novel. Yes. And uh, he, he marched for civil rights and he became an avid fan of Tar Heel basketball. That's amazing. Well, I really like Vasa and I, this idea of the character that you've created, this idea between seeking vengeance for yourself. Vengeance is really for yourself. You sort of give it a self-centered idea that, that when you seek justice, it's more altruistic. Justice is more about what's for everyone else. Exactly. That's, that's part of what Vasa discovers on his journey. And, and yes, Vasa, Vasa learns, the fictional Vasa learns that Vengeance is selfish and backward-looking, and justice is altruistic and forward-looking. Yeah. This week, and everything that's been going on in the news this week, and watching what's happening, unfolding, I was like, oh, do I want to finish that book that's a war story? Mm -hmm. But you've layered it, which is so true, right? Because war isn't this separate thing that happens. Wartime is painters and teachers and husbands and daughters and right. right there there's so much humanity in what you've written well i'm delighted to hear that that was uh, that was what you took from the novel i uh, that was certainly my goal and it's it's uh, flattering to hear that it came through i appreciate that sadly war is is not something separate and apart from the mainstream human experience it's it's part of the human condition uh 
you know, we go into it with the same, same emotions and issues that we have and everything else, but, but everything is amped up to the 10th power uh, in a combat zone. And um, it's a situation that lends itself to getting your priorities straight and deciding what you believe in. Hmm. I want to break in here and tell you something about Tom. He's a decorated air combat veteran who flew in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's logged more than 5,000 hours and retired as senior master sergeant from the Air Guard after over 20 years of service. Now, I want you to hear how he uses those experiences to put his readers in the cockpit. Um, this is from Drew. He gives a lot of the clues to the reader to what it feels like to be a pilot. There was a thing that he mentioned something called the slipstream, and it was like music changing keys. There was a sound. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is that? Uh, yes, I, I tried to put little details uh, in there to help put the reader in the cockpit and um, and, and maybe little things that you wouldn't know unless you were a flyer. But, you know, of course, in, in any aircraft, you have the sound of air rushing over the aircraft. And uh, even, even if it's an aircraft that has loud engines, you also hear the sound of that wind rushing over the aircraft, which we call the slipstream. And that sound changes depending on what the airplane is doing. Uh, for example, if you drop the landing gear, the sound changes and you can you can tell by the sound that that the gear are down mm. if you slow down the sound changes if you speed up the sound changes and you learn to associate these tones in the background with a particular phase of flight i never knew that before mm-hmm. it gave me just a completely different impression of what it must feel like to be a pilot i liked that you become very aware of, of the, the sensations and sounds around you. You know, an airplane is always vibrating. I once had an instructor who told me, you will become part of this airplane. And, and that's true. That's how it works. Okay, that's a perfect spot to stop and listen. This is from Chapter 1 of the audiobook, Red Burning Sky, written by Tom Young, produced by Recorded Books, and performed by Pete Bradbury, an actor of stage and screen, and an accomplished narrator. Miss Caroline rolled hard to the left. With communication out, Bogdanovich had no idea if Wilson was taking evasive action or if he just lost control. From the navigator's table, Greenbaum looked over at Bogdanovich with eyes widened by fear. What now? By way of an answer, Bogdanovich tightened his grip on the nose gun. Nothing to do but man the weapons and defend the ship until the aircraft commander said otherwise. The aircraft shuddered again, this time with a screech of rending metal. Miss Caroline seemed to roar in pain. Bogdanovich felt himself grow light in his seat. The aircraft was descending. Fast. Over the cries of bending steel came the clangs of the bailout bell. Bogdanovich let go of the gun. He and Greenbaum disconnected their oxygen masks and unplugged their interphone cords. Greenbaum opened the hatch at the bottom of the nose compartment. The slipstream's howl assaulted their ears. Far below, green hills flowed underneath the plane. 
Without another word or look, Greenbaum placed a gloved hand on his ripcord and disappeared through the hatch. Bogdanovich hesitated just a moment. Every instinct screamed against leaping from an airplane. Would he shoot open? Would he slam against the airframe and die from the impact? But Bogdanovich knew what happened to crewmen who waited too long to bail. He placed his hand on the ripcord and rolled through the hatch. The tumble through space overwhelmed his senses. Earth and sky swapped places over and over again. A rush of wind deafened him. The bright blue blinded him. When the chute inflated, the opening shock yanked Bogdanovich hard. His limbs flailed as the risers snapped tight. The world went silent. In an instant, the engine's reverberations vanished. Under the canopy, Bogdanovich floated alone. He twisted in his harness to look around. He saw no other parachutes and no aircraft. He scanned the ground for a crash site, but found no telltale column of smoke. Perhaps Miss Caroline had drifted out of sight in a slow descent before striking the ground. Perhaps his crewmates all got out before him and had already touched down. For a moment, Bogdanovich felt as if he'd dropped to Earth from another planet. He had no memory of pulling the ripcord. No matter. He had a good canopy, and now he needed to think about landing. What had his instructors told him? Don't brace, don't anticipate the ground. When your boots hit, become a rag doll and roll with the impact. Bogdanovich placed one foot over the other. Maybe that would keep a tree limb from striking his crotch. He folded his arms and placed his hands in his armpits. That served two purposes. It protected his fingers, and it shielded the arteries under his arms. He hoped his leather A2 jacket could absorb some of the cuts and scrapes, too. He tucked his chin and closed his eyes. And then the beating started. Something struck his shins and wrenched him to his left. Something hit him in the back. Something scratched his face. Leaves showered him. When everything stopped moving, Bogdanovich opened his eyes. He found himself hanging in dappled shade two feet above the forest floor. He looked up to see his parachute tangled in an oak. Pain radiated all over his body, but nothing felt broken. He unclipped one of his releases. The effort left him swinging by his right shoulder inches off the ground with a strap digging into his scrotum. Bogdanovich unclipped the other release. He thudded to the dirt. His hip bone slammed into his forty-five Colt. That hurt, and he stifled the urge to shout curses. He looked up through the branches at the sky, the deep blue from which he'd fallen. For a moment, Bogdanovich's predicament overwhelmed him. Just minutes ago, he'd flown miles above the earth at nearly two hundred miles per hour. Enemy fighters had threatened high-speed death by fire and metal. The thin, cold air of high altitude had forced him to breathe oxygen simply to remain conscious. Now he faced different dangers. On the ground, motionless and alone in the thick, warm air of summer, in territory held by the enemy. He crept to the edge of the woods where a pasture pitched downhill. Three figures appeared on the slope. They trotted uphill toward Bogdanovich, accompanied by a large dog. Bogdanovich dropped his hand to his side, unclipped his holster, gripped the pistol. But as he watched the people advance toward him, he realized they were not German soldiers. They were civilians. A woman, an old man, and a boy. Bogdanovich wondered about their loyalties. Were they patriots or collaborators? Maybe neither. Maybe they were only hard-working farmers who just wanted to be left alone. Over the next few minutes, Bogdanovich realized, Fate would have to take its course. 
He couldn't shoot civilians, and he sure as hell couldn't read their minds. He rose to his feet, held his arms outstretched with palms open to look as unthreatening as possible. You draw in a lot of different characters that give us an idea or a picture of this part of the world at that moment. You have created this uh, this view of Yugoslavia that I hadn't ever seen before, you know, that without running water uh, in indoor plumbing facilities, but their their generosity of spirit is so great. Their willingness to help others is so, it's astounding that they gathered together and sheltered these pilots that were behind enemy lines. It really is. I have uh, so often been struck by exactly as you put it, not just the courage, but the generosity of the uh, Yugoslav civilians, the Serbs who helped shelter those 500 downed airmen. Uh, obviously, it was very dangerous for them. They hid them in uh, barns and cellars and stables and haylofts. And it's not hard to imagine what the Gestapo or the SS would have done to a farm family if they had caught them sheltering allied flyers. But not only that, they were also very generous because these people were poor to begin with. And now they have all these extra mouths to feed, literally falling from the sky. Yes. And yet they did everything they could to uh, help downed allied flyers. And it's a story that uh, isn't that well known outside of Yugoslavia. To this day, they're very aware of it in, in the former Yugoslavia. They're very aware of it in Serbia. And uh, I've, I've heard people who have ancestry from that part of the world talk about they, they wish that more people knew about what their ancestors did for, for our own people during World War II. I think that that is what people should know about this. This is this great rescue story. But layered under that, you have given us this great story of compassion and humanity and selflessness, you know, in the face of, of danger to themselves mm-hmm. uh, in these communities that, that didn't just shelter them, but then figured out ways to coordinate a rescue. It was really risky and dangerous. It was. And one of the things I like about the story is that there was no point where anyone was just passively waiting for something to happen. The, the airmen who were rescued weren't just sitting around waiting for salvation. They were putting together components of a radio to broadcast a coded message. The uh, villagers were doing what they could to shelter and feed the airmen, but also uh, help find uh, places to build these airstrips and help build the airstrips and affect the rescue that way. Everybody just had to go above and beyond to make this extraordinary thing happen. And speaking of which, the action in the novel takes place in about six or eight weeks in the summer of 1944. But in reality, Operation Halyard ran from the summer of 44 until about February of 1945. Also, in the novel, I describe the construction of a dirt airfield. In reality, there were at least three. So if, if you read my novel and you think this is an extraordinary event, what happened in real life is even more extraordinary. That's a really lovely point, because normally in historical fiction, I think the opposite happens, right? We sort of take an event and we, we embellish and embellish the story. But you've actually sort of narrowed in and told the heart of the story, but it's an even bigger heroic story. You've drawn attention to something that has such heart. That's a good way to put it. Everybody involved in this had to have had such heart. The down flyers who didn't give up, the villagers with all the heart it took to feed and protect them, the guerrillas for 
all they did to, to work with the flyers and the OSS, people who had heart. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. So the last question I usually ask authors has to do with the title of the podcast. It's called Desideratum, which is a Latin word for things that are desired as essential. When I was growing up, there was a poem called Desiderata. I remember that. And it's full of some of the, actually some of the life lessons I think that you've woven through this story and philosophy. I like to ask, what's most essential to you? What do you think is most essential? I think what it's taken me most of my 60 years on this planet to learn is that, that life is not about you. Your own life is not even about you, but it's about what you can do for others. And I found that, you know, when I look at times in life when I've been the happiest, in the happiest times, it's when I've been focused not on myself, but on what I could do for someone else, whether it was helping my wife get through an illness or uh, being very focused on not letting my buddies down when I was deployed with the military. I, I find that there's a, there's a, a happiness and a and an inner peace that comes from focusing on something other than yourself. Tom, that was beautifully said. <laughs> well, thank you. That may be my favorite answer I've ever gotten to that question. That was really good. Thank you so much. I wish I was as good at living it as perhaps I expressed it. It's, it's something I'm continuing to learn, but uh, I'll, I'll certainly set that as a goal anyway. Yes, it's almost like we're wired to forget that. We're encouraged to be an individual in so many ways. And, you know, it's a lesson we have to learn over and over again. It is true. And in, and in some ways it goes counter to human nature because, you know, after all, we're mortal animals, we're mammals, we get cold, we have a survival instinct, we need to be comfortable and warm and, and fed. And so there's a natural part of you that thinks first of your own survival and comfort. Mm -hmm. But um, there comes a time to get beyond that. And to recognize how much joy there is when you get beyond that. Right, right. I want to say thanks to Anne Pryor at Kensington for introducing me to Tom. Kensington Books generously provides the discount code DP20 to Desideratum listeners to save 20% across their incredible library. Just enter DP20 at checkout at kensingtonbooks.com. Also, please look for the Red Burning Sky audiobook on Libro FM. I found five of Tom's other novels in Libro FM's library as well. I'll put the Desideratum podcast affiliate link with Libro FM in the show notes and on the link tree on all our social media accounts. Using the affiliate link supports the podcast and a local bookstore of your choice. This has been Episode 47. As always, thank you for listening.